Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 26th, 2018. This is episode 2170 of the Survival Podcast, 2170 times we've gotten together at TSP to talk about the world that we live in and how we can live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Uh, today being Monday is a listener feedback show. Before I tell you what we're going to talk about, I want to kind of apologize for the past couple of weeks. Um, I feel like I have not given you guys the show that you're accustomed to getting, that I have not been at the level that you expect from me, not at the level that I expect from myself. And I'd like to tell you that I'm feeling all perfectly better now, and you can expect that the show will return to its usual level of quality. I think it will be better this week than it was last week, but I do not know what this crud is that I have. But it's been kicking my ass. I think my wife's about a week behind me, and so she's right in the middle of the kind of the worst of it. Um, I don't know if this is the flu. I don't know if it's a cold. I don't know if it's some other thing. I, I don't know what it is. But the only way I can describe this is not only did it hammer my voice to where you could barely understand me a week ago, um, it takes everything out of you, even though you don't, this is weird, you don't feel that bad. Um, you just don't want to do anything. And then when you start to feel better, you think, well, I need to get up and do something. That's my solution to being sick. I get up and do shit and get your blood pumping and, you know, get it out of you. And, you know, you go do something that you could do very easily and you're, you're wiped out physically. Um, it's, uh, it's a weird thing and I don't like it. But I do want to apologize that, you know, I haven't been able to bring you the full energy uh, and I believe the uh, the quality level that you're used to. But the show must go on, and I will endeavor to continue to make it a little bit better for you every day until I get back to where I belong. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I asked a question today. What is the age of adulthood on Facebook? I'm going to tell you exactly how I asked it and what I learned by asking it. I, I really thought... That by the way I asked it, I would get more people that would actually answer the question rather than dive off into pet issues. But such was not the case. Next, I have a question on growing microgreens outside and how to and what varieties are best for it. Uh, a question on what can we learn from the Netflix series, 13 Reasons Why. I'll talk to you about that. Um, a question on how to buy cryptocurrencies that are not on Coinbase, specifically since I mentioned Bittrex all the time, and they're not taking new customers. I'll talk to you about that and, and what exchanges are and how they work and uh, what one I would recommend as long as Bittrex is unavailable to new customers. I have another source for you for Jeff Lawton's Urban Permaculture and one that cannot go away, at least in theory, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means apart from Jeff's DVD on urban permaculture. Question on choosing a shotgun and what I'm calling the danger of dependency with the illusion of security. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into your emails for me today, let's uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. You know, the herbal world is full of hocus-pocus and malarkey. You know, this is going to cure cancer, and if you just, you know, put six drops of this on your forehead, you'll be able to see through to infinity or some other such nonsense. So my, my issue with that has always been, 
there are good companies out there, and I want to make sure I'm working with them. And I felt very blessed in this show's early, uh, you know, when we were early on, the first couple of years, to come across Western Botanicals and have them want to work with me because they're a real company with real people that really care about you, and they don't promise anything that's not possible. Uh, in fact, they just provide the best whole herbs and herbal preparations you could find and let the products speak for themselves and let, let the, 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 the discipline of herbal medicine speak for itself. Herbs can do so many things for us. But, you know, I'm, I, the way I put it before is like if I get in a wreck and there's a yield sign in my spleen, I want to go to a surgeon. You know, and I think if you called up Western Botanical and said, I have a yield sign on my spleen, what should I do? They think they say, go to the hospital, right? I mean, there's a place for traditional medicines like herbal medicine. And there's a place for modern allopathic medicine and surgery. And we need to know the, the, the you know, kind of the, the point that we turn to from one to the other. But I think in a lot of situations, herbal medicine is safer, it's kinder, it's gentler, and it's more effective, especially with chronic things. And it's worth investigating. And if you're looking for the best products you can find and people that can help you out if you need to figure out what you need to buy, you can, you can turn to Western Botanicals. And if you want a great deal to be even better, because I already have great pricing, you get 25% off everything that they sell with their premium membership. That sells for $50 a year. But guess what? If you're MSB, you get your first year for free, and after that you get it for half price. So they're a great supporter of the show, and they offer really great products. And their goal, put an herbalist in every home in America. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. Just got my latest copy of Self-Reliance Magazine, really digging it. Uh, it's, you might imagine a lot about gardening and stuff like that this time of year. Some really great articles in there, pretty in-depth stuff. Nice to see Jackie Clay has found a home there. So the Ask Jackie column that used to be at Backwoods Home, of course Backwoods Home has been retired, is now in Self-Reliance Magazine. So if you've been missing Jackie, you'll find her there. Uh, lots of really great information on building the most self-reliance into your life that's possible. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. Remember, they do offer a discount for members of our MSB. Before we uh, get into answering all your questions, let's also take a look at the year in history. We're up to the year 104. i got a short segment for you today. More Bridges, contributed by David Verne at tspwiki.com. Trajan continues to expand his infrastructure projects across the empire, building new roads and repairing old ones. A significant project was the Aklantara Bridge, built over the Tagus River in Spain. The bridge was damaged several times by wars, but was continually repaired and still stands today. My take by David Verne. In the Roman Empire, bridge projects were the responsibility of local communities and the 12 municipalities that were involved in funding the Aklantara Bridge. One of the problems in the later empire was the loss of private investments in local towns. As barbarian invasions grew more constant, tax revenues fell, leading to a breakdown in infrastructure. So who's going to build the roads and the bridges? Apparently, in ancient Rome, it worked better when you know, private enterprise had a lot to do with it. Who would have thought? No, that can't be true. It's just history. It isn't like that stuff's based on fact or anything. Anyway, I'll leave it at that for today. Just a real quick reminder, if you want to support our show, best way to do it, join the MSB. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. You'll see all the great benefits that you get. And let's get into it. So I want to start out with this, uh, this question that I asked uh, on Facebook. And I want to put it out that I like, I put this out in my sphere of influence. So, the people I'm addressing here when I say they didn't answer the question is asked are not 
your random Aunt Clara that's on Facebook that's, you know, a, a, a libtard or something like that. These are people mainly from the TSP community and people I'm personally connected to in, to a large degree on my personal page as well. And I'm, I'm not putting anybody down. I'm actually kind of making a point about how conditioned even those that we that believe ourselves to be free of this conditioning are. But I want to read, so there's no he said, she said, exactly what I posted. And this was on the age of adulthood. And, of course, things are going around right now. Should we raise the age to buy an AR-15 to 21? Or should we raise the age for all guns to 21, et cetera? And that's, that's what has the, 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 the subject being discussed right now. And I'd, I'd like to read this to you. And, again, I want you to think with an open mind when I read this. Believe it or not, I am open to discussing the concept of 21 versus 18 years of age, but you likely won't like how. I don't mean for guns, and I'm not going to say if you're a vet it is different. That is bullshit. As a veteran, uh, I am a citizen. Same rights as you. No special powers are afforded to me, nor should they be. Now, I'm open to discussing a re when I'm No, I am open to discussing a reconfirmation of what is considered an adult in our nation. Then whatever that age is should be uniform for anything deemed the realm of an adult. Do you think the age should be 18? If so, why, other than that is what it always was? Uh, if you're over 30, when you talk to the average 18 or 19-year-old, do you feel like you're talking to an adult? Is there a logic reason we choose 18? Or is it just an arbitrary number? In most traditional societies, there is no age that makes a boy a man. There is some ritual and an agreement among elders of when a boy is a man. He is not afforded the burdens or the privileges of manhood until this ritual occurs and the elders agree. Such a ritual system is not possible in a state with 330 million citizens so far. So for our system to function, we must choose an age. If that is the case, don't we have to side to the majority side of an average? I have a young man that works for me. He is 19. I like him. If not, he'd be fired. But I don't think he acts like, or for that matter, is an adult. My son was more of an adult at 16 than this kid is now, and I didn't consider my son an adult in my eyes at 16 or even 18. I would say my son began to act like a, a man, uh, like, like a man, a grown adult rational man, at about 19 to 20. So if we take an honest look at our youth, what age can we say that they are actually seem to understand things and act at an adult level? In the end, any number is arbitrary, but in our system it has to be so. Do you really feel like the average 19-year-old is an adult? Do you think none of those Tide Pod eaters are 19 or 20? Now, in the end, this is my view. We need to settle this number, and it may be that it's 18. Perhaps it is 21. I honestly don't know. But once we do, it is the number. No, it doesn't apply to driving. We've had kids driving a long time. There's a process for that. A 16-year-old is a child in every state, so there's nothing there. Everything else, though, should be uniform. One age to drink, one age to own a gun, one age to vote, one age to consent, one age to enter contract, one age to be subject to the draft, etc. And no number will be perfect. No number will be fair to all. I was living on my own and paying rent at 16 because my family was in a meltdown, and it's what I had to do to stay sane. 
Please tell me what age we should use and tell me why you think that is the age. And please don't say because the law says or because it has always been so. In 1855, you could have said that about slavery. A law doesn't make something right. If we are to have such a discussion, it should be done with logic, reason, and fact, and separated from gun control, drinking, etc. It should be its own thing, and then it should apply evenly to all issues. Okay, so do you know what the number one type of response that I got was? The number one type of response that I got was, when I was a kid, I was driving a car at 14 on the farm, or, well, it's 18 for this, so it should be 18 for that too. And, and various versions thereof. Well, I think by the time you're 18, you're old enough to own a gun. That's not the question. The question is, if we actually look at our young people in society today, what age makes the most sense to declare that somebody, by age alone, is an adult? And I'll link to uh, where I shared it and stuff, and you guys can look at the, the litany of, of responses. Um But it's just, I don't know, it's it, it's weird to me that, that rational people seem to do anything they can to avoid an actual question. Um, here's a, look, here's an ex example. You just heard what I read, and Danny says, The recruiters were bribing me at 16. I ended up signing on the dotted line for the Army one month after 17. So if they raise the age to buy a rifle to 21, they need to remove all military recruiters out of schools and make the minimum age to join 21. Danny, dude, how is that an answer to my question? See, what Danny did, he grabbed onto his pet issue. Guns and the military. That's not what the question is. The, the, the question is, what age can we look in our society right now and say that these people behave like, in general, adults and, are, and, and can be expected to behave like adults? And I got to say, I was not a baited question I really don't know. And I think that's the other thing that threw people for a loop here. They can't answer the question because I didn't give them something to fight against. Right? I didn't give them, like, this is what I think, so you need to tell me why I'm right or I'm wrong. Because then you can fall back on all this stuff really easily. Well, you said 21, and if you can get shot at 17. And I've made that argument before, but not when the question's asked this way. And what's taught me is how conditioned we are. And what really, I'm telling you, what really threw people for a loop is I didn't pick an age. I honestly left it to them to come up with an age. And that made it very difficult for them to actually do. People want something that's concrete that you can say, I agree with that or I disagree with that. They don't want to be forced to think. They don't want to have to come up with an answer of their own because, well, gee golly, that's difficult. Let's look at a few more answers I got. Uh, Tom said, it goes to training. If you want to drive early or buy a gun, have more training. Tom, that's not the question. You know, it, 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 just, it just isn't the question. Here's one of the best answers that I got, even though it's not really an answer. Christopher said, I would still lean towards 18 for everything, simply for the fact that I don't want to restrict a person's natural liberty any longer than we have to. That's actually a answer. 
I don't know that I completely agree with the assessment of 18. Maybe it's younger, maybe it's older. But that's an answer to the core question. Well done, Christopher. I mean, that is, okay, here's the issue we're discussing. We're not going to sideline it somewhere else. So remember, the question is, what age do we consider our young people today, on average, an adult, Tom says, I was hunting with a shotgun at 10, bought my first rifle at 12. I took hunter education, plus my dad was a sergeant of the Marines. He drilled safety always. Good for you, Tom. Nothing to do with the question. First of all, no, you didn't buy your first rifle at 12. Your parents bought a rifle that possibly you paid for, because even when you were 12, Tom, for a 12-year-old to go buy a rifle would have been a felony. So, so that's the other thing I have a problem with here. Everybody's nostalgic about their past. Everybody talks about their past. And you hear people, you go, that's not what it was like. Every, every truck in my high school had a gun rack in the back. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. That's bullshit. And you know it's bullshit. Let me read one more for you that completely avoids the question, even though it makes some valid points. But you can't address the question because it's difficult. Bill says, there's nothing to discuss. It needs to be the same across the board. 18 period. Just before I went to the military, they bumped the drinking age of 21 in Washington State. Old enough to go to Vietnam and die, but not old enough to drink. Make it 21 across the board. I'm okay with it, but you must do something to help these kids grow up. Just changing a date doesn't change their moral code. Bill, not an answer. Not an answer. The question is, based on logic and reason, what age do you think a young person today should be considered an adult? Saying, well, I went to the military when I was 18, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Should that have ever been the case? Should, should 18 be the age of service, especially without parental consent? See, right now a minor can join and serve in the United States military. If they've completed high school... And mommy or daddy signs a little piece of paper. They can join at 17. Trust me, I know I did it. So there's an example of where that, that particular thing can be done with parental consent, but not as an individual. Should it be okay for our government to force, and let's, let's assume you're okay with the draft as a thing, okay? Because I'm actually totally opposed to the draft. Because I find it slavery, and I'm not for slavery. But let's say that you are okay with the draft as a thing. Is it okay then to, to say at 18, a young man is old enough to be forced to carry a rifle and kill someone he doesn't want to? Kind of makes you question the draft as a whole. But, I mean, if, if, we, if we're going to be that serious about it, 1821, a little different, isn't it? It's also like this, right? There's a point where it stops being about what you're allowed to do, and it becomes about what you're held accountable for. If a 16-year-old commits robbery, the, the, the consequences are different than if an 18-year-old commits robbery because one's a juvenile offense and one's an adult offense. But if we're going to say somebody is not an adult yet at a certain age, in one classification, shouldn't they be not an adult in every classification? So it gets great. But here's how we know there is a way for us to actually have this discussion and actually come up with a reasonable answer that more of us can agree with. And that is, let's try it this way. Is 10 old enough? Now, every damn one of you just said no. Why? Because it's obvious. Is 15 old enough? Some of you out there trying to justify, well, when I was 15, first of all, whatever you're going to think next is probably bullshit, and it's probably hugely embellished. 
But we're not talking about you. We're not talking about that one homeschool kid that you know that built a company that Microsoft bought when he was 14 years old. We're not talking about the exception. We're talking about the rule. Is 15 old enough to consider a young person an adult in common law? And every damn one he's being honest just said no. So it's 16. Most of you are probably like, no. 17? No. If I say 18, you immediately say yes. Why do you say yes? Because that's the way it's always been? Is that a good reason? Is that a good reason? Do you, do you think that the people before us that decided it was 18 were empowered by God with knowledge you do not have? And blessed and said, Thou shalt go forth and name thy age of adulthood, and I have given thee the knowledge of God to do so. No. So why that number? Because we graduate, and some people said, well, but it's when you graduate high school. Probably, unless you're left behind. One person said 19, because pretty much everybody's out of high school at that point. One person said, well, if they're not an adult at 21, what do they do for those three years when they're, you know, they're, you know, if they don't go to college? How do they support themselves? I don't know. I had a job when I was 16. You can have a job as a minor. I know lots of 17-year-old kids that have jobs right now. There's not a, an impediment to employment, though there could be consequences of insurance and what jobs you can actually get. And there may be consequences to, well, how much can you work? See, it gets really complicated. Because the more you push toward an older age, the more restrictions that you never even thought of you're placing on a person, and the less accountability, you're def and you know, the more you're deferring accountability. Because I have a big problem with things, too, like when the state says, well, you know, our age of adulthood is 18, but we can track certain criminals uh, as an adult at 16. Now, wait a minute, that's not consistent, is it? Now, I'm going to tell you where I actually come down on this, finally, after all this. My gut leads toward 18 and 19 years of age. But I'm not sure, and I would be open to a further discussion about it. And I'm not saying 18 because that's what it's always been. I'm saying 18 because, in general, I think a person at 18 is capable of being an adult. I don't know that they are. And I also think back to this, and this is why I'm open to discussion. When I was 18, 19 years old, man, I did some stupid shit. I'm going to tell you. I had a pretty great life. I did some pretty good shit, but I did some stupid shit, too. And, and I was willing to do some stupid shit. I mean, you didn't have to convince me. And I know that some of those things that I did, when I look back at them, I go, you know, it was just not being a fully developed man. You can be fully developed physically, but mentally not being fully developed to the point where you're thinking enough about the next consequence, the, the, the following consequence. And people will say, well, some people never get there. I agree. But there is a point that we can agree on. And that not everybody's going to agree. I don't care. There's a, there's a consensus that we can reach with a majority. A very law, I'm not talking about 51%. I'm talking like 60, 65%, maybe 70 will go. That's, that's kind of reasonable. Especially if we can have the conversation outside of, well, how old is old enough to own a gun? No, don't, no. How old is old enough to be legally considered an adult? Period. When I was 14, I was driving the farm truck. Stop! Stop it! I mean, literally, I can hear the person's voice when I read that comment. I was doing this when I was 12. It doesn't matter. This is, ha and this is what I've learned. 
I've learned it many times. Boy, this is a reinforcing lesson. How effing conditioned we are to grab on and cling my issue. And I was, and I'm telling you, the majority of males, when you start, when you open up your conversation, when I was 12, when I was 14, when I was 16, when I was 9, what's about to come out of your mouth next is 90% of the time total, complete bullshit. And you've, you've, you've said it so long that you actually believe it. Because I want to know where is this high school in America where every truck in the parking lot had a gun rack with guns in it during school. Because that never happened. Stop saying it happened. We look like idiots to the other side when we say stupid shit like that. There ain't a black and white picture on earth of this. Now, did a lot of the guys in town drive around with a gun rack and were there some teenagers that had gun racks and went hunting in the fields? Sure. But it was never acceptable to have guns in the parking lot in visible gun racks in America. Stop saying it was. No, no, you did not go buy a gun when you were 11. Your daddy bought a gun for you when you were 11. Stop deluding yourself. But I'd like to hear from this audience in the comments of today's show. What age do you think we should consider a young person legally an adult in the United States of America today, and why? And the why part should be based on facts, logic, reason, science, whatever you want, but because there's a spaghetti of regulations to wrap up, take apart if we change it from 18 is not an answer. Because when I was 14 is not an answer. How we look at people and what they do is how, what is the point of cognitive development where that person should be both having the the freedoms and privileges along with the burdens of adulthood. Now, I'll tell you another thing that I've, I've, I've honestly thought was one of the better things to come out of the discussions or were some attempts at real answers. And one was, why not make it 21? I think one guy said it could be as high as 23, where it's just, there it is. That's where it is. But there's something called emancipation, and it ain't just about releasing slaves. I was emancipated at 17. I had to be because I was living on my own, and it was the only way I could legally protect myself. And that is, you basically apply to the state and say, I am now legally an adult. I can be responsible for myself. I can make my own decisions. They send someone out to evaluate you, etc. What if there were a formalized program like that where young people could say, I want all my rights and responsibilities at 18. And if they went and did that, it's kind of like bringing that hunter-gatherer ritual, that rite of passage back. You know, you can you can take that rite of passage early. My concern with raising it to 21 is I do believe in consistency. And if you're going to tell me that we're going to say a 20-year-old is not an adult, then I don't see charging a 20-year-old as an adult in our court system. I just don't. I just don't. It doesn't make sense. You can't say, well, you're not an adult for this, but you are an adult. For I'm sorry. So the higher you push that number, the longer you defer responsibility. I just think it's interesting. It's so hard to have a discussion about. I'm sorry you used over half, almost half the show for it, but I think it's an important thing for us to evaluate and understand as people that claim to love liberty. So let's go to something totally different here. Uh, this comes from Chris. Chris says, I want to grow microgreens outside for personal use. What's the best way to do it? I live in Zone 6B, 
want to grow microgreens for personal use. I don't want to take up space in the garden, don't want to take up space in the house, and don't have a greenhouse. Under those circumstances, what is the best way to go about growing microgreens? What are the best ones to grow, Chris? Okay, so to be completely honest with you, you are going to limit what you're going to be able to reliably grow. And your two best microgreens to grow under the circumstances that you just described, in my experience, are going to be um, daikon radish and black oil sunflower. You can probably get away also with growing um, basil, though you'll probably want to grow it to more like a baby green size than a true microgreen size. But the truth is a lot of the other microgreens are really fussy. Uh, things like arugula are really fussy to grow as a, I mean, as a plant, arugula is very forgiving. As a microgreen, at that density, it gets, you know, die off and, uh, what they call dry spotting and rot and stuff like that. So it's just a little bit more difficult. Now, the next thing is you don't have a greenhouse and you don't want to do it inside. Okay. So the not inside part and not having a fan in a climate controlled environment is going to limit. And I'm not saying you can't do anything but, but daikon and, and sunflower, but they're going to be your two best. They're going to work best for you. Um, your, you know, your other thing is germination time and growth time. Uh, the colder it is, the slower the stuff grows, and the longer it takes to germinate. The other thing is watering. Um, people that grow microgreens for a living, they spend a lot of time, a lot of time on watering and trying. And I've seen one of the best guys I know at the business, John Dowie, up in uh, Vermont, uh, New Hampshire, attempt to automate this. And there's some level of automation in it, but in the end, everything has to be looked at a few times a day, and judgments have to be made about this one needs more, this one needs less, etc. Whereas daikon and sunflower, they don't get real... If it's wet, they're good, they grow. Okay? So if it was me, and I wanted to grow microgreens, and I didn't want to take up any garden space, and I didn't want to do it indoors, I would probably build two wicking beds. In fact, I've built two wicking beds in my indoor system that I was exact, and I'm growing sunflower and daikon with one of them, okay, and baby greens with the other. But if I wanted to do this on an ongoing basis, I'd probably set up some sort of a wicking bed and, and realize, like, it doesn't have to be aquaponics, right? It could be, you know, um, a, a 30 gallon tank with a little bitty $5 pump or $20 pump in it. And two concrete mixing trays, your 14 gallon ones from Home Depot, Lowe's, et cetera. Uh, water in, water out, soil. And that what that'll do is eliminate having to water from the equation, and just by changing how high you hold the water level, you can control how damp the soil is. And what I would do is I would plant one of them, half sunflower and half daikon. And when you start cutting from one, plant the other. Soak your seeds a day in advance, and, I mean, cover it. Like salt and pepper, if you love salt and pepper on something. I mean, it should be completely coated, high-density, you know, planting, and just a line right in the middle. Sunflower this way, daikon that way. They grow about the same rate, and they will last about as long as each other. And I would cut them as you use them. Instead of cutting them and cleaning them individually and packing them in the refrigerator, uh, right up to the point where, you know, if they, they look like they're going to go over the edge, to putting on true leaves and losing that tenderness that makes a microgreen so good, well, then maybe you go ahead and harvest them all. I like the two-tray method because all if you have livestock, this is great. When, when Like I said, when you start cutting tray A, plant tray B. 
You'll be cutting tray B in seven to eight days. You can hold those plants in that first tray for about that long. And when they get to where you're kind of losing it and you're going to cut tray B, pull all of the stuff out of tray A, feed it to the birds, you know, feed it to your animals, and clean it up and replant it. And back and forth that way. And that way you always have fresh, cut-on-demand microgreens. And that, that is exactly what I'm doing in my indoor system. I know you said I want to do it outdoors, but there's, there's literally no difference except I'm using lights and you wouldn't have to. Now, the other side of this, like I was talking about the temperature. Okay, you are going to have a, a, a reality here that you are going to have a relatively short growing season, probably about five months, five to six months. Um, maybe you can do a little bit longer than that, but I mean, this stuff's it's going to die if it freezes. And if it's too cold, it's going to take way too long to grow to make it worth doing. Um, your kind of your temperature point you want to be at is having your days, you know, up in the 70s. That's where you're going to have great rates of growth outdoors. Uh, I would say that, you know, if you go the traditional route and you have a garage, one little plastic, uh, uh, shelf system, And a couple T5 lights, or T T8 lights, I'm sorry, T8 lights from Home Depot or Lowe's and regular trays. You can grow more damn microgreens than you can think of. And you will have to go out there and water them all. If you want it to be the easiest thing in the world, it's going to be uh, your, your wicking beds. Again, just like the ones in my, uh, my winter project. And I'll put a link to that playlist on YouTube for you today. Next up, uh, I've got a segment on a YouTube series, not a YouTube series, a Netflix series called 13 Reasons Why. It's about suicide as a child. Before I read that, though, or before we get into that, I want to talk about an email that I got from a guy named Gregory. And Gregory's brave to be able to say this publicly now, right? And I want us to start actually seeing people as brave when they speak the truth about their childhood instead of embellishing it to how they were a superhero when they were 14 or something. So Gregory says, The end of episode 2165 really struck a tone and brought back memories I hadn't dredged up in a while I thought I'd take a minute to share. I see protesters holding signs up that say, Fear should have no place in school, but what they really mean is fear is welcome in school unless acted upon. In middle school, I walked the halls of my school in perpetual fear of being jumped, harassed, bullied, or otherwise terrorized. I grew to hate the guys who made me their target. At one point, I badly sprained an ankle during a pickup game of basketball and spent a couple weeks utterly terrified to be on crutches because I couldn't run or fight if they chose to come after me. Despite my parents intervening on my behalf, nothing changed until I was free from that school. If it weren't for a strong support system of my family, I might have been one of those suicide statistics. I thank God my parents tried to put me on pills. I uh, never tried to put me on pills and instead taught me to deal with asshats and the mental aspect of being stuck in a confined space with people like that. I'm a better person for having walked through those days and learned those things, but I can't imagine how much worse it is today with cyberbullying, following these kids everywhere they go all hours of the day. One thing I think parents need to carefully consider is when and whether to allow their kids to have social media accounts. Giving a student a chance to say, I'm done with you losers and going somewhere better and cleaning out their friends list on social media are a way to break suicide and violence chain. I agree we'd have a fraction of school shootings and suicides if kids were allowed to make that call and leave their tormentors and behavior modification pills behind. Thanks for a great show, Jack. Just re-upped my MSB uh, again. Well, thanks, Gregory, for the honesty. I have to tell you something, guys. Gregory's email is not unique to me. It's not unique to me. 
Um, and what I mean by that is it's not something that's new for me. I've, I've been getting emails for almost as long as I've been doing the show when I've talked about the school system. And I've had people that are personal friends that have looked me right in the eye and said things to me like, you know, you're right, I almost killed myself when I was a kid. I thought about it. One guy told me, put a gun to my head and, and, and tried to think of one reason not to do it. And fortunately, I thought of one reason not to do it. Um, I've had people tell me they thought about blowing up their school, shooting kids in their school. There's, there, there's a lot more undercurrent of this issue than we are comfortable looking at. And that brings me to the email that uh, I, I chose for today's show uh, for this segment, and it comes from John, and he said, you talked about suicide rate of teens and school children. This might help. 13 reasons why Netflix original official site. Okay, so it's a link to the Netflix thing, and I'll put a link to this series on Netflix for you in the show notes. Um, we actually watched the whole first season of Netflix, uh, 13 Reasons Why, uh, a few months ago, my wife and I were really waiting for the second season. Here's the, and I won't give away anything by telling you the premise of the show. The premise of the show is there's a young girl who has killed herself. By the time the show starts, she's already dead. Though the actress that plays her is in the entire series, and you'll understand why in just a second. Um, And she leaves behind tapes, audio, old school audio tapes. And this, this takes place in the modern era. And part of it is it makes it a little more difficult for the people that have to listen to them. And the deal she makes is with the one character that each person is supposed to listen to the tapes. And then when they listen to it, one of the tapes will be their tape, the role that that person played in this person deciding to end their life. And that if it doesn't go person to person to person to person, and if, if everybody doesn't do it, um, that there's a, there's a big consequence at the end. That there's this person with a nuclear option, so to say. And that's, that's as much as you need to know about the actual workings of the series to determine whether you want to watch it or not, but to understand the concept. Again, this is a young woman who was extremely hurt in the modern school system and sought help and didn't get it and, and chose to slit her wrists and die in a bathtub. And uh, I try not to give away any of the plot spoiler type stuff. The, the, the thing that I took away from it is I think it's a very accurate reflection of how children view school, how important they think that which is unimportant is, how much they're obsessed with getting into the right college, uh, the cliques and the nature of those things, and how stressed out kids get, not just how shitty they are to each other, but how stressed out they become, how much they get convinced that this is reality. And I've said this before, but I'll probably say it a thousand times more or 10,000 times more before they lay me to rest, right? School's not reality. We keep telling this is the real world. I want you to think, like, if you are the guy that wrote in today and you believe that every, this is reality and it will always be like this, that when you go to work, it will be like school, that when you go to college, it's going to be like high school, that when you're, you're grown and married and have kids, 
that when you go to work, it's still going to be like school. And back to our discussion earlier about when is someone an adult. Well, I'll tell you what, when they're 15 or 16, they're not. Their brain's not done developing yet. They don't have the ability to see forward. doesn't matter how smart they are. To see forward in their own lives. And if this is the way it's always going to be, then screw it. And people want to throw, well, it's mental illness, it's mental illness. As though no sane person ever said, this hurts too much, I'm better off dead. No sane person ever did that. I mean, no sane person with terminal cancer ever got to a point where they said, it's just not worth the pain and suffering anymore. I'm going to be dead in a week. So I'm going to choose to go today under my own terms. And I'm going to end this because it's, because there's nothing, there's no point to it anymore. No sane person ever did that. Well, that's not a straw man you think it is. If the person that's making that determination at 15 or 18 or 17 or 16 feels that way. And that's what I see in this series, this 13 Reasons Why series. This girl believed that it would never get better and that no one would ever care and this is what life would be forever. So she killed herself. And again, I think it's a very accurate depiction of what school's like today. And I, I think it's a really good thing to watch. And I think that one of the reasons I didn't want to watch it when, uh, when Dorothy said she wanted us to kind of watch this thing together and she'd heard about it is I thought the whole thing would just be completely miserable. Like, you, it would just be like, I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm, de but it really wasn't. It was actually a very, what I would call a very accurate look at what is going on in schools today. And I, I recommend watching it and having discussions about it. And, and I, I really want to encourage you folks, especially those of you that get active, that are politically active and write letters to the editor of newspapers. We, we need to start a discussion on this at a national level that these two problems are the same core problem. Our children who are slitting their wrists and hanging themselves with belts and eating a bottle of pills is the same problem that is our children taking a gun into school and killing others and in general ending up dead themselves. I do believe that it, you know, 99 out of 100 cases where someone picks up a gun and does a mass shooting, they intend to die. They intend to go out that day. I believe this last kid, I know we got him in custody, I think he was going to go out in a blaze of glory in his head. And it was very akin to, he went to the top of the building, he wasn't looking for attention, he was really going to jump off of it, he stood on the ledge, he was ready, he was prepared, he was committed, and in that last moment, something happened. And he chose not to jump. In this case, going to the window ledge was taking that gun to that school and starting to shoot people. And we know he had more ammo. We know he wasn't stopped in the act. Okay, we, these are facts. He had a lot more ammunition than he fired. He could have kept shooting. So if the only thing he wanted to do was kill as many people as possible, and that was the only motivation, why did he stop shooting? I'll tell you why he stopped shooting. He, he became a kid again. In the middle of the carnage... 
He realized what he was doing. He realized he really didn't want to die. He dropped the gun and ran away and hoped it would go away. And it never will. And my, my wife and I have talked about this. We both have some compassion for this kid. We don't want him to go free. We don't want everybody to say, oh, it's okay, Nicholas. It's all right. We'll send you to the hospital for a couple of years and let you go. No, you made a decision to take the lives of 17 people. You will never see the, the, the light of day as a free man ever again. But I do feel like in many instances, the system also failed him. He had 37 contacts with local law enforcement. He said online, I'm going to go shoot a school. He knew somebody told the FBI and nobody did anything. If he's, if he's that screwed up at that point, what do you think he feels like? No one even cares if I do this. I might as well. And do you know what? I know that might, you might think, no. Let me tell you something. A lot of people that kill themselves, that's exactly what they think. No one will even care if I do this. So I might as well. Because you know what the number one thing I've heard people say? When they said, I tried to think of one reason not to. And I did. I thought about how hurt my mother would be. I thought about how much my brother would miss me. I thought about my friend Tom who would have, you know, I thought about my kids. What makes people decide not to is in general the fact that someone else cares. Not every time. It's not a perfect solution. We're never going to solve all of this. But we can do a better job. I really recommend this series. And I really recommend that if you're going to be in any way active from a, you know, like a, a media standpoint, this is a message for our time. Our children are killing themselves because of the way we're treating them. And it is a combination of things. It's because the, they don't have fathers in the homes. Okay, but I'm, you know, we had single mothers in the 1980s and this shit wasn't going on and anywhere near these numbers. And yes, I think it's a contributing factor, but like, see, everybody wants this an easy answer. Well, it's, 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 it's all these women without, without husbands. Well, because if you're sitting in your nice little house and you're a, 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 you know, a typical man-woman family that's not divorced, you get to say, that's not me. It's all the psychotropic drugs. I agree it's a contributing factor, but it's easy to say when your kid's not on it because now it's not me. It's not me. There's a line in this series, this 13 Reasons Why, where the one kid asks another kid, he hasn't listened to his tape yet, did I kill Hannah? And the other kid who knows the whole thing already says, yes. And then he says, we all did. We all in this society that have accepted this type of thing as okay, as acceptable, who have allowed our children to be treated like prisoners at minimum security prisoners, we all get some of the responsibility. We all do. You don't get to cleanse yourself of this. And I don't care if you homeschool your kids. That's great. I'm sure you care about the family across the street from you whose kids go to school. We all owe it to this generation to say, say something 
to speak up, to start having this conversation. This is the survival podcast. But it's not the I'm going to survive and screw you podcast. This show has always been about the entire community. This show has always been about anybody that cares enough to do something, to act. This is the issue of our time. The issue of our time is not gun control. It's not taxes. It's not the Middle East. It's our children killing themselves and others. And the reason it is the issue of our time is because it is at crisis level and there are things that we can do without stepping on anybody's rights at all to mitigate, I did not say solve, I said mitigate this problem. When I hear politicians say, we're going to fix this, we're going to solve this, we're going to make this not happen anymore, I know they're lying. Not just because every time a politician says something, they're lying, but because it's not possible. We are not going to live in a world where nothing bad ever happens anymore. That's bullshit. It's lies. And believing you can do it actually makes more bad things happen. But we can live in a world where a lot less of this happens, and it's going to start with a discussion. This is the discussion of our time. Why are our children killing themselves? And what can we do so that next year less children kill themselves? It has nothing to do with guns. And you can't blame it on a solitary issue. Drugs, the kids aren't disciplined. Well, who's not disciplining them? They don't have fathers in their home. Hey, you know what? Sometimes that's just the way it is. And I know great, outstanding men who grew up with nothing but a woman in their life as a single mother. I had one guy say, the reason he did this is because he didn't have real parents. He had step-parents. I had to back away from that conversation. I swear to God, if he said that to my face, I might have decked him. And some of you know why. Some of you are like, why is he so pissed? Because I'm a stepfather. Don't you question whether my son ever thought he was loved. Don't you question if I was ever not there for him as a stepfather. Screw you. And I've known a lot of birth parents that are shit. My mother's one of them. And yet I turned out okay. You know why? Because there was something in me that fought through all this shit. I'm not going to look down on a person that doesn't have as much of it. It is the job of the strong to shelter, protect, and defend the weak. And sometimes that is putting out a hand and pulling them up on your level rather than standing over them to guard them. It's time for this conversation. Let's move on to something else. How about something a little less serious? How about uh, cryptocurrency? It'll be a short, simple segment today. Jack, do you have any information on when Bitrix will start taking new account applications? I've been a long-time listener and followed your journey in cryptocurrency. I'm learning in small steps. My first step was to open an account on Coinbase last fall. Now I want to move my Bitcoin to the Bitrix exchange and buy some ARK. I set up an ARK wallet, but then when I tried to open an account at Bitrix, I was notified they are not accepting new accounts. Any suggestions on alternative ways to buy ARC? Should I wait it out until Bitrix starts accepting new application? Thanks, Paul. Paul, no, I don't think you should wait it out. I think you should just use an exchange that's open. 
And probably the best mainstream exchange for you to use as a U.S. citizen is an exchange called Binance, B-I-N-A-N-C-E.com. I do have a link in today's show notes, and I will give disclosure here. If you want to set up a Binance account, please consider coming by today's show notes and using the link. It is an affiliate link. I don't know exactly how that works, but when I was researching it today, I saw they had an affiliate program and thought, hey, why, why not? So uh, it won't cost you anything, and I'll get credit for referring you. Uh, maybe I'll put a, a banner on the site as I, as I look a little bit more into it uh, so that people can do that. Um, but Binance is an exchange that works almost exactly like Bittrex. Why do I recommend Bittrex? Because when I needed to find an exchange to be able to buy things other than the few things that Coinbase lets you buy, um, and I looked out, and actually it was, I think, I think it was actually either Swarm City or Basic Attention Tokens that I wanted to buy. And so I looked for exchanges that sold it, and Bittrex was one of them. So then I set up an account there. And once I set that up account, account there, I, I, I realized really soon that everything that I wanted to buy was there. So I didn't set up anything else until uh, I think I picked up some of the wax tokens and I had to go out on like Hooboy or something like that, some uh, Korean exchange to be able to buy that because it wasn't listed on Bittrex. So uh, Binance is what I would recommend for you. And, and there's... This is my one thing that I have had issue with. When it comes to where you hear, you know, somebody went on this exchange and hacked it and moved, you know, a million dollars worth of tether or something, it always seems like it's Binance. I'm not going to say that Bittrex never had a hack, but I don't remember ever hearing about one. But I've heard about a few on Binance. This should not matter. And the reason it should not matter is the purpose of an exchange is to exchange. I do not hold cryptocurrency on an exchange. If I somebody says, hey, I want to buy MSB and Bitcoin, and I'm thinking I'm probably going to buy some uh, ARK, let's say, I might give them my uh, exchange address to send the Bitcoin to, 50 bucks worth. And I might hold 50, 100 bucks there until I throw some more on there to buy some, because I know that soon I'm going to use that, and I have a little bit of you know very quick liquidity there where I can buy something that might pop on my radar as a, a penny opportunity or something like that. Uh, but I do not hold any significant quality on exchange. So I'm not worried about these hacks, because literally the currency is there long enough to buy what I want, and to move it to a wallet that I completely control, like Jax or Trezor or a paper wallet or a dedicated wallet. I hold my ARC in the ARC wallet. That way I can vote a delegate and earn my proof-of-stake reward, which right now is paying me out at about 0.5 to 0.6 ARC a day. So I'm, I'm very happy about that, especially since I see a bright future for ARC as one of the real stars that's still under 10 bucks. I, you know, I'm not guaranteeing anything there, but I just see that as like, I, I can't see the day. It doesn't come sooner or later where you're not looking at $50 arc or something like that. And then this early play with it, it seems really, really intelligent. Um, and it's still on sale as far as I'm concerned, by the way. So there you go. Use Binance. And if you can, please consider uh, coming by the website, looking up episode 2170 and using my link. Uh, and if you do that, let me know so I can see if these guys are honest about their uh, whole referral thing. Okay, next up, I have a, another source uh, of Jeff Lawton's Ermid Permaculture DVD. Um, again, due to a legal fight with a video producer, that guy went out and issued takedown notices to every piece of content he ever had anything to do with 
Whether he has a legal right to do so or not is a matter for the courts, but YouTube, etc., if they can provide anything that proves that it might be their content, they just do it. So it's become almost impossible to find. So somebody somewhere put it up someplace on YouTube uh, where it's a Uh, you have to have the link. It's it's like it's available to anybody, but it's not in the public domain. Like you won't find it if you search for it. And somebody did that last week and told some other people, and they went and got it, and now they're all very happy, and it's still there. But somebody that did that will pull down a copy of it and put it up on a thing called DTube. What is DTube? DTube uses IPFS uh, file structure, which is basically kind of like the old days of LimeWire and Napster with, with file sharing, but in a totally different way, and it's in, you, you can't take it down. You can't get rid of it. So I have a link to the DTube version of the Urban Permaculture DVD uh, in today's show notes. But I kind of want to talk a little bit about how awesome that is. You know, I keep hearing about people being censored. And YouTube taking down their videos, demonetizing is a totally different thing, by the way. But people actually having content removed, delisted, etc. And what we've done is we've moved into a world where because an entity decides that they disagree with you politically, they can just shut you off. They can close you down. And I personally am big on rewarding producers for their content. And I don't think we should be out making bootleg copies of, you know, people's shit. But when it gets to the point where you can't even get it and they want you to have it, you know, having something like DTube. And, and what I think you're going to see eventually is voluntary exchange value for value in content will become the de facto. Though there won't be uh, any desire anymore to go out and, you know, Let any central authority control this with decentralized solutions like DTube. To where this is what I can see happening. Someone will take Joe Blow's content and put it on DTube or put it on like the music version of DTube, let's say, with an app that you can listen to music on your phone like iHeartRadio or iTunes Radio or Pandora or something like that. And there won't be any fee, but there'll be a way that it can be monetized. And all of a sudden, Joe Blow will start getting paid for his content even though he didn't put it on there. And I think that'll be anything from Joe Blows to like mega stars, like, you know, probably books like Tom Clancy and Brad Thor, uh, music with top, you know, artists. Who the hell's top today? Because most modern music sucks. But let's say like a Blake Shelton. Uh, yeah, I know he sucks, but, yeah, you know, that's what I'm talking about. That level. And, I think if content providers start to get paid for shit, they'll, they'll understand that most people are willing to pay for the content that they consume. Just, you know, Joe might be willing to pay a dollar for it, and Sam might be willing to pay five bucks for it. Well, that's fine. And I think when you look at things like the Brave Browser, this is another way that this is beginning to happen, where the person doesn't say, I think Jack's worth five dollars a month. What the person says is, I think the sum total of all the content that I consume online is worth about $10 a month to me and what I can afford in my budget to, to give back. And then I can put it into something like a Brave Wallet as basic attention tokens. And then the system will say, you consumed X percentage of this, so X percent goes to here. And Y percent goes to there. And Z percent goes to there. And we're, we're changing the world. 
in the way people reciprocate value. And this is a very interesting thing to me. Because I'm seeing a fiction book that was called A Prophecy Come True. There's a book by James Redfield, and his shit gets woo-woo. I'm going to tell you right now. Way too woo-woo for me, and I do consider myself a redneck hippie duck farmer. right? I'm a redneck with my guns, but I'm also a hippie, and I'm a bit, for some of you, you'd call me new age. I'm a deist. I believe in an energetic universe. But it's woo-woo shit even for me, so some of these can be really woo-woo shit. But his first book was probably the best one, and it was called The Celestine Prophecy. And a lot of it was based on the psychology of Carl Jung. Now, don't worry if you don't like that stuff. None of it's in there, but it's there if you know it. And it talks about four different control dramas. Intimidator, interrogator, aloof, and poor me, and how they interact and compete for energy. And it also talks about different things that will happen in society. And some of them go to the woo-woo world. But one was a new view of something we call tithing. So tithing right now is you go to church, you give 10% of your income, a tenth of the tithe, you've contributed to charity, you've done your good deed as a member of your church. That's how we think of it. But what, he, what, what Redfield said in this book was that we'll get to a point where when I meet somebody named Sue and I have something I'm looking for and Sue points me in that direction, then I'll give her money. And I'm telling you, when I read this in 1993 or 94, I was like, Pfft. it just sounded ridiculous, but yet it sounded true. But I just like, I'll just give Sue money. And then I think about today. Brave with basic attention token. DTube has this system built into it right now with people being able to contribute to each other. Steam it. And I think about like, what is my members brigade really, but a way for people to say, you know what? Hell. I get so much out of this. Sure, I'll give you 50 bucks a year. Or I'll wait for a sale and I'll give you 30 bucks a year. Because to me, it's worth it. And then, yeah, you get the discounts and everything. But I know the main driving reason most people join is because, hey, I listen to this show every day. It helps me. And I think it's worth 18 cents a day. But I didn't think it was 18, worth 18 cents a day. I wouldn't let this guy listen to him yammer on, uh, you know, for two hours a day. And then people say, well, what about all the people that listen that don't pay? I don't care. I don't get upset about it. You know, maybe I'm maybe I'm not that much worth it to them. Maybe they don't have the money right now. Maybe they were a member at one time and they've contributed enough in their mind. Maybe they don't see as much value as somebody else does. Maybe they have other ways that they contribute to me by sharing my show and telling other people about it. I'm not worried about that. And I think that's like the only way that something that's like a tithing-based system works is you cannot worry about what anybody else does as the provider of information or the receiver. You have to not worry about that. And I, again, I'm not a religious man, but I know the Bible better than most of the claim to be. When, when your right hand is giving, let, let, let your left hand not know what your right hand is doing, Right? Let, let not your right hand know what your left hand gives. It's something to that effect. And I, I'll quote the truth wherever I find it. In the words of Richard Bach, if I find it Snoopy, I'll, I'll quote Snoopy comics. And I think that's how you have to live, in general, how you have to live. You don't worry about what other people do or don't do, unless it directly affects you or unless there's something you can do about it. Well, these deadbeats over here, don't worry about them. I don't care. They're not your problem.
But it's amazing to me that we seem to be moving into this world and it's cryptocurrency and decentralized systems that are enabling it. If I could ever talk to James Redfield and interview him, I would very much like to talk to him about how these technologies are enabling something that he had in his mind you know, 30 years ago. With no, there's no way he knew these technologies. He actually meant I would meet Sue on the street. I would say, you know, I'm trying to find um, a place to get a donut. And Sue says, hey, right over there is the best donut you'll find in the world. I go, oh, shit, here's a dollar. That's how he meant it. And that's why it was like, this sounds like it could be true, but I don't buy it. Because it's not going to work that way. But boy, the world we're moving into. Gives you some hope, doesn't it? Okay, next one. Let's do a gun question here, right? Jack, been re-listening to you answering questions on building a rifle within a given price point. You had me thinking, how about a shotgun build? How should I divide my funds in purchasing a shotgun? Mostly the gun, or split between gun, ammo, and accessories. When I was younger, I owned a side-by-side, but now in my mid-30s, I'm getting more into hunting and fishing. In large measure from your show, I want to start, stop borrowing shotguns whenever I go to the field. Some relevant details. I have a $500 budget. I live in Minnesota and want to hunt everything available to me. I have a bow and rifle I use for large games. Initially, a rifle barrel is not a necessity. I have an anti-gun wife, progressive extended family, of which I have plans to convert as many as possible to hunting and shooting sports. So for that and a few other reasons, I'm actually considering a 20-gauge, but I have an open mind. My father-in-law is already booked for two tr hunting trips this year. Your recommendations will probably be his first shotgun as well. Okay, so at that price point, I'm going to say you want to look to either a Remington 870 or a Mossberg 500. As far as accessories, you don't need any, right? Not in the way that I'm thinking the word's being used. Now, I, I would recommend in either one of those guns that you look for one that has a screw-in choke, and all the new stuff does. And I would say you probably you have plenty of budget left over if you buy one of the more uh, economical models or used version of either one of those guns. Um, you you want to be able to, you know, if you want as much diversity as possible, to me, the two choke tubes you want are in-proof cylinder and full. There's not a lot of times I'm going to pop a modified in. Now, you do live in a place with a lot of waterfowl hunting, And there are times, especially with ducks, when they're just a little further out or, you know, what have you, and I don't want to go to a full-on full, I might jump up to that modified. And most guns come with a modified choke, so that's going to be there anyway. But usually I'm either I'm on a full choke because I'm shooting something like turkeys or taking really long shots at something like geese, uh, or I'm gonna, my, my go-to all-around choke is an improved cylinder. Um, I, I know some people kind of back off even to what they call skeet choke, which is one constriction down from cylinder bore. And I just have found, to me, that improved cylinder choke in 20 and 12 both is just the sweet spot. 20-gauge, I have no objections to it. And I think that you will find that, especially in the 870, you'll end up with a little bit lighter of a gun, a little bit faster handling of a gun. I would recommend that you try to find something when you go to a pump with a 26 versus 28-inch barrel, and that's going to be kind of the hardest thing to do. A 26-inch barrel, especially, I know the kind of the kind of woods you're going to hunt are a lot like what I grew up hunting in Pennsylvania. You know, you got woodcock, you got grouse, etc., and you're hunting this thicker woods, and that two inches of extra barrel length, it doesn't do anything for you from a siding plane stance. I don't find that I shoot any better with a two-inch longer barrel, but you've got that extra two inches to be in the way. So, so that's kind of where I would lead you. The other option, and I, I don't really know a lot of good brand new guns that 
would fit this well. But if you take your time and you go around and you spend some time at gun stores that are larger gun stores with a good inventory of used guns, you know, it would be kind of nice to have a side-by-side or an over and under 20. I mean, those are fantastic. Um, but like kind of where I would put you if we were buying a brand new one is like the Beretta White Wing, and then you're up into the neighborhood of like $1,100. So with a $500 budget, we're not just out of the ballpark. We're completely out of the, you know, we're out of the state. So, I, I, you know, I, I really don't want to send you there. Um, there are some stuff that's being made, uh, Turkish manufacturing specifically, uh, that's out there that you can get for under, you know, under that $500 price point. But I think you probably will do better going out and looking at the used gun inventory and telling your different gun shops, you know, I'm in the market for um, a hunting shotgun, 26-inch uh, barrel, 20-gauge, side-by-side over and under. They're both fantastic guns. I wouldn't even look at single shots for the versatility that you're looking for. If you have your choice and your druthers, improve cylinder modified in your double gun. Screw and chokes is better. Um, and I, I am willing personally in most of my hunting to go with both of them being improved cylinder. Uh, that's just, again, my preference, best overall uh, choke. The, the concept of the modified is you missed the first shot. Game's a little further out on that second one with a modified choke. And that works great until you're standing in the dove field. And you got two doves incoming. You hit the first one. And the second one's a hell of a lot closer when you blast them with that dense modified pattern. And feathers go flying everywhere. And, you know, it's 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 dove mayhem at that point. Uh, so that's where I would go. I'm not going to do it as a build because, to me, this is not a build. Uh, I'm not a big fan of slings for shotguns. I'm not a big fan of scopes for shotguns or aiming devices. I don't think you need heat shields or anything like that out in the woods, extended magazines, etc. That's going to violate most local game laws that require your shotgun to be plugged to a capacity of no more than three shells. So I, I just, I don't see the the purpose of any of that stuff. So I, I will, I did, I've done shows on selecting shotguns before, and that's probably a good standalone show. It won't be this week, but probably in the future I'll do something with a full standalone, and we'll break down individual models and stuff like that. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you right toward those, you know, entry level pump guns uh, or uh, used side by side or over and under, especially in 20 gauge. Um, over and unders. And side-by-sides in a 20-gauge are generally pretty lightweight guns. They have a bit smaller of a frame, and they are just sweet. They really are. I'll, I'll tell you, I have a fondness for the 20-gauge in a side-by-side. I really do. Um, to me, it points beautifully, uh, and I, I just and I, I'm a pretty good shotgun shot. Uh, I shoot better, I think, with a 20-gauge double than just about anything else out there. And it's just the way that the balance in them, and even the lower cost stuff. I've seen stuff, you know, in the three hundred, four hundred dollar range like that on the used market. It's something I'm always on the lookout for when I go to gun shows. Um, but if you want something off the shelf new, Mossberg five hundred or Remington eight seventy, and not a black one that's designed to put under your bed with a twenty one inch barrel or an eighteen inch barrel on the heat shield. Your typical sporting models, your Remington 870 Express, your standard hunting Mossberg 500, uh, whatever Winchester's making in a pump now would be fine too. I just don't know what that is because I'm not a huge fan of uh, Winchester for new guns. This last one today comes in from Nicole Sauce from our expert panel. She says, I wanted to share a story about the importance of prepping if you live on a military base. Do store food and supplies. A friend of mine and listener of yours is stationed in Guantanamo Bay. 
He moved there with basically nothing, but has stocked up on food and things as best he can is growing some of his own food. As a result of the shutdown, they were going to the sh shut down the commissary on base, and you just can't leave Guantanamo to go get stuff at Walmart. Think about that for a second. All the people who have been in the habit of hitting the commissary other than storing uh, things and thinking about what if. Needless to say, as you're a listener of yours, he was ready, but that story would have been very different for lots of other people on the base had the shutdown gone forward. It makes you think uh, you're even more vulnerable when you outsource your basic needs to a stable entity like the military. Food for thought, Nicole. Nicole, I completely agree. And first off, I'll say the obvious. Shutting down the commissary at Guantanamo Bay due to a government shutdown would have been dumb, stupid bullshit that was completely unnecessary since the commissary self-funds with sales. And it would have been just bullshit, just to make a point politically. But that doesn't matter if you're the soldier or the sailor stationed at Guantanamo Bay and all of a sudden you're cut off from your supplies. Doesn't matter why, it matters that. And I don't think this is just for military. I think there are so many things in our life that we believe will be there that we don't even think about them not being there. And it, it, it creates a, a huge problem in our lives. I call it the danger of dependency with the illusion of security. And you can see it when something happens like people's power goes out. And I don't mean that, like, okay, you weren't ready for the power to go. I'm talking about the psychology in our minds of how used to the normal we are. And what I mean by and I've done it myself. Power's out. You know, don't have the generator going yet, so, like, everything's not back on. Got some flashlights and stuff. Walk into the room, and what do you do? Flip the daggone light switch. Really? In a blackout. You flip the light switch. And you know you've done it. Every one of you out there know you've done it. I've done it. If I can admit it, you can admit it too. Water's off. Your hands get dirty. What do you do? You walk over to the sink and hit the... Then Oh, oh yeah. I'm not saying it's bad in of itself, but what I'm saying is it shows us how dependent we are on systems. And I think it's not just stuff. It's also mentality. So, for instance, we got so much rain here. It coincided with my septic tank having needed to probably been pumped a year ago and not being pumped, that my septic started backing up into our toilet. Oh, shit. Well, first thing we did is, well, if, if it comes to it, we'll shit in a bucket. We got the, the stuff for chemical toilets. We got a bag. We got a toilet seat. We got a bucket. We got a solution if we got to do it. We get it pumped out. Well, here's the problem. The guy, of course, always wants to sell you a new septic you know, system. So he says, well, leach field shot. Oh, okay. But first step is to get it pumped anyway. All right, well, we get it scheduled to get pumped. So pump truck comes out, pumps the, the solids tank, which would be the shit tank out. And the way these septic systems work, you got two tanks. you got a solids tank and you got a water tank. And everything goes to the solids tank. And then water overflows from the solids tank into the water tank. And then it overflows from the water tank out into your leach field. And that's how the system's supposed to work. So... They pump out the water tank and the shit tank. Well, when they pump the water tank out, as soon as he gets it down to the bottom of this huge pump, water starts pouring into it, not from the shit tank, because it's already pumped out. Where's it coming from? It's coming from the leach field supposedly blocked. Now, I might end up, after this is all over and done, with having to you know, redo the leach field. We'll see. But right now, it doesn't look like it. 
But, okay, now you got the water tank filling up, which, of course, is going to back up the solids tank eventually, which is what really caused the problem in the first place, because it's a daggone flood. So what do you do to be prepared for that? You know, what do you... What I had on hand was a bilge pump. You ain't supposed to do this, but what I did is I put that bilge pump in the water tank, which is all water coming in from the... the it's clear. doesn't stink. Threw that leech, uh, that bilge pump down the bottom of there with a float switch. Had, you know, rigged it up to a garden hose, ran a garden hose all the way down to my woods. Pump's about... You no, know, pump's like a 3,700-gallon pump, and it has almost no head on it. It's like three feet ahead. But the garden hose can only probably get... A thousand gallons of water through it an hour, just for capacity issues. I ran for 36 hours before it stopped. 36,000 gallons of water came back through and got pumped out of there. In the end, it was an inconvenience, but we didn't have to shit in a bucket, but we would have eventually if we had to. See, you have to have a, it's not just stuff, it's a mentality to go with it. And it's very easy to think, I don't have to worry about sewers backing up, I got a septic you're actually more likely to have to do something to your septic than the typical sewer. And you got the guy telling you, oh, a leach field shot. Well, when can you get the truck here? For two days. Why? Well, because all this rain, we're pumping tank. Oh, really? Oh, really? You don't say. You know, it kind of sounds like not everybody needs a new leach field. So, you know, we'll see where that goes. But that's kind of making my point. Like, you get addicted to what you think is security. We do that with jobs. I'll never get fired because I work for the government. You know? We do that with, you know, energy. Well, our power never goes out here. <laughs> yeah, that makes me think of the old, uh, the old saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Uh, yeah. Hey, just never think that you don't have to worry because the more you think you don't have to worry, the worse it will be when you do. And sooner or later, you're going to have to. Anyway, with that, we've uh, wrapped things up again. I want to remind you, as always, one of the ways you can help support this show is to do your online shopping where, tspaz.com. i got a great product for you today, and it's about the time of the year to get them in the ground. Uh, Jerusalem Artichokes from a seller on Amazon called Yum Heart Gardens. Uh, I've used these guys a bunch of times, and I've always been happy with what I've gotten from them. Jerusalem Artichokes is a plant I think everybody should be growing. The first time I grew them, I had a 10-foot by 4-foot row that I planted them in. A listener sent me four. I cut them in half and planted eight spots. And that fall I harvested, oh, God, I think it was four 5-gallon buckets or five 5-gallon buckets of it. Uh, so this is uh, a pound for $7.96. But the ship, this is like it's a small individual seller so it's more like 16 bucks for a pound of them man you grow more than you'll ever use and and i mean this is a plant that grows in texas it also grows in usda zone three it's just a fantastic plant um highly productive good looking plant tall plant and once you have them as long as you harvest them every it's crazy right but as long as you harvest them every year you'll always have them the only people i've heard that they planted them and, and didn't get more were the ones that stopped harvesting them And they're like, they didn't come back. And I guess they crowd each other out eventually and what have you. But if you harvest them, then you end up with a couple little pieces left behind, and it comes back you know, just as good as the year before. Jerusalem Artichokes from Seller again, Yumhart Gardens. 
Uh, you can find the, you can find the uh, review at tspaz.com. And remember, at tspaz.com, you can see all my reviews uh, broken out by individual product categories now as well. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today is by Men at Work, and it's called It's a Mistake. And I was I knew Men at Work well. I wasn't a huge fan, but I knew them well in the 80s. They're a huge 80s band. Quintessential 80s sound, too, of that kind of 80s pop music. And I thought, I'd never heard this song. It's a mistake. And then I played it, and I went, yeah, I've heard that song. I just hadn't heard it forever. And what this song is actually about is well, what happens if the U.S. and Soviet Union accidentally go to nuclear war. That's That was the genesis behind it. If you if you watch the video, it's kind of Benny Hill lampoonish with the, like an old lady beating on a soldier and like it's a very low budget video, very common in the early 80s by the way. But you know when I think about it, what it makes me think more about isn't just well what if we'd gone to nuclear war? Like how many times would we go to war and it's a mistake? And oops, sorry we blew up your country. Oops. Sorry that you came home not whole, soldier, and sorry that you don't actually get the medical care that you deserve. Sorry that you're mentally scarred for the rest of your life. It's a mistake. Whoops. And, you know, they never say it that way, but you can tell that some of the people that are willing to send our soldiers off to kill others kind of look at it that way. It's a mistake. It's okay. You know, we still we're still a force for good. It's all right. <sighs> History doesn't always repeat itself, but it always seems to rhyme. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's a mistake. It's a mistake.